Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The sport of boxing has gone under a tremendous metamorphosis over the last few decades. At one time, it was can't-miss TV or pay-per-view. Not only were heavyweight championships huge events, so were the lighter classes with the likes of Hearns and Hagler and Leonard and Duran and Mancini. So many. And before them, there were others too. Back in the formative years of boxing, it looked totally different than it does today. And on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of the most remarkable careers of all. The career of a middleweight who stepped into the square circle over 200 times and was never knocked out. A career that lasted over 20 years. A career that so many know nothing about. The career of Leo Howard. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 114, Leo Houck. An incredible boxer who beat the champion and didn't win the title. A boxer who fought over 200 times and never lost due to a knockout. A boxer who fought, at times, more than one bout a week, sometimes on back-to-back nights. Yes, back in the day of Leo Houck, who started his career at the age of 14 in 1902 and finished it 24 years later with an unofficial record of 144 wins, 39 losses, and 27 draws, according to BoxRec, it was a completely different game. There weren't governing bodies like there are today. Scoring was totally different, and many times a bout would only be scheduled for six rounds. But, get this, there were also times where the bouts were scheduled for 20 rounds. Imagine that, a 20-round bout. Leo fell in love with boxing at a very early age for a few different reasons. Mainly, it paid well, and he really liked it. In fact, Leo liked a lot of sports, and each year, he would take time away from boxing to play baseball or basketball, and he claimed, by doing so, it kept him in great shape. 
On today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome in the author of a terrific book on Leo called Leo Houck, a biography of boxing's uncrowned middleweight champion. The author, Randy Swope, did a phenomenal job of research and dives in deep on so many aspects of Leo's career. I want to thank McFarland and Company Publishing for sending me a copy of the book. In fact, McFarland has a terrific library of sports books. Check them out. Anyway, Randy and I will dive deep into Leo's career, his climb to the top, his winning the championship but not being recognized as the champ, to the type of boxer he was, and the one main criticism in his style that might have cost him more opportunities, and the management of his career, which might have also cost him opportunities. And we'll get into all of it in just a moment. But first, a few notes. Please subscribe to Sports Forgotten Heroes and give it a like or even a nice review, especially on Apple Podcasts. And please let your friends, family, and fellow sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. Who knows, they might just like it. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and please take a moment to visit my website, sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. Here I post more about my guests, the forgotten heroes we talk about, and there's more information about the shows I have coming up. Also, please shoot me an email to let me know how I'm doing, ask a question, make comments, whatever. Send that email to me at sportsfh.info at gmail.com. Again, that's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. Also, don't want to forget, Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Okay, so Leo Houck, he had a heck of a combo, dangerous, was never knocked out. And he could go round after round after round. And here to tell us more about Leo is my guest, Randy Swope. Randy, first, thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And I'd like to start with this. Where does your interest in Leo Howe come from? And why write a book about him? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me on, Warren. I mean, a great opportunity. Uh, Leo Hauk was basically unknown to me, even though I only lived 17 miles away from where he was born. Um, The events that led me to having him as a subject are maybe not unusual, but uh, it all started with my son um, asked telling me to work out with a heavy bag and build myself up and, you know, going that, yeah, seriously. And going that direction, you know, and, uh, you know, he said, it's a great workout. And I started doing that. And, uh, you know, suddenly I'm progressing with it pretty good. And, uh, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a boxer now. Right. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) I, I just got intrigued with, you know, the sport because of the training behind it. And I, I was looking for a subject. I went to the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame website, 
and went through all the Pennsylvania inductees for boxing. When I saw Leo, Leo Hauk, you know, from Lancaster, immediately it caught my attention. So I started to do my, you know, my preliminary research. And I discovered, you know, no one covered this fantastic boxer's career in a biography. You know, feature articles, you know, newspaper features, etc. So it it kind of, you know, it kind of led me to that plus... Lancaster was always, uh, it was a place where I worked. I went to college and graduated in college close by mm -hmm. uh, Millersville University. So mm -hmm. it, it, it was kind of a, I, I don't know what exactly the word is. You know, I don't want to use that word serendipitous, but there it goes. <laughs> but uh, it all kind of fell in place. And suddenly I had a great subject. He is. He is a terrific subject. And, uh, you know, one of the things I... I grew up a boxing fan, and obviously the game, the sport has changed dramatically uh, in just the last couple of years. And when Leo fought, it was so significantly different. And I'd like to talk to you and ask you a couple of questions and get these details out of the way before we dive in deep. Uh, there were a couple of terms that you used in the book. Great book, by the way, Leo Hauk, a biography oh, of boxing's uncrowned middleweight champion by McFarland Publishing, and they did a great job. You did a great job. Really terrific read. Um, define a newspaper decision and how controversial such a decision might have been. Yeah, the newspaper decision, which I knew nothing about, you know, until I, you know, embarked on my research, plus a, a book that I read by the same publisher about Harry Greb, another boxer of mm -hmm. that era. Well, newspaper decision had kind of evolved past, you know, Harry Greb's time, but during Leo Hauk's time, there was no boxing commission in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And uh, newspaper decision was really uh, reporters, local reporters, um, for example, in Lancaster, which was where you know, Leo lived. They would go and cover a fight, typically in Pennsylvania, six-round fight. They would come in and do their story and they would kind of render the decision. That's what would be written up. You know, it's like hmm. Leo, Leo how, you know, uh, definitely got the newspaper decision, win, loss or draw. That it was a peculiar thing. Uh, and it was always questionable because it was maybe sometimes susceptible to, uh, let's say the darker forces of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> someone someone maybe persuading you to uh, write it up a certain way or declare the other opponent uh, a winner if it was a close fight. But that's typically how it was done. Uh, you would have sometimes judges who would award points, but newspaper decisions back then, early 1900, seemed to be the norm, at least in Pennsylvania. Uh what would happen? What would happen if 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 one newspaper named Boxer A the winner and 
the other newspaper named Boxer B the winner? Well, I discovered, you know, in Leo's case, that occurred several times. Mm -hmm. You would actually, you know, and I researched uh, so much. I probably had, you know, with covering all the fights, easily 1,500 pages of newspaper articles. Wow. I, I did. It. it was a big thing to kind of keep organized, but I, I, would, I would discover sometimes a reported win, a reported loss, and in some rare instances, a draw. Mm-hmm. So I would look back on the, you know, the recognized um, record keepers, and they're all very valid, and I use them extensively. International Boxing Organization was very good, and you would have, you know, archivists and historians compile the early records, and, you know, they would maybe report a win where I would discover a win and a draw or maybe a loss. So I didn't dispute, you know, the hard work that went before me in compiling a record list. Hmm. I, I just decided I'm going to list all the outcomes. And uh, that's how I kind of, you know, I thought this would be the only way I can cover it and give them a fair treatment uh, and do it and do it that way. And if anybody wants to see all those outcomes, get a copy of the book. You got them all listed in the back. They are listed in there. And, uh, you know, there's there's more than there's at least several times where that occurred. Uh, everyone, you know, views the fights differently. And, and mm-hmm. I've made one po- significant point that, of course, you know, a newspaper reporter is outside of the ring. He's seeing something different. But the third man in the ring, the referee, he knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, he's seeing who's hitting who, you know, who's landing the blows closely. But for the time, that was the best thing going. All right. What is, I have a feeling I know what it is, but I'm going to ask it. What is a wind-up bout? And how did it differ from a regular boxing match? That's, uh, you know, that's another thing I learned, Warren, you know, during my research. You know, when, for example, you know, we'll we'll talk about Leo. When Leo started fighting, he would be fighting as a youngster, start, you know, when he was very young. Well, he would be kind of on the undercard, you know, maybe a Mm four-rounder. But as he progressed... And locally, you know, he started really, you know, beating most of the competition in Lancaster. The goal is to work your way up to the windup. The windup is the main bout. Gotcha. That's the money. That's the money bout, you know, the larger purse and everything. And that was the, the goal. You know, Leo worked his way up to the windup. And, you know, subsequently, you know, pretty much held that for most of his career. You Mm -hmm. know, he was always, always there, at least when he fought in Lancaster and most often in Philadelphia. You know, Leo was going to be in the windup. Gotcha. Okay. lastly, tell us about his last name. The book, it's H-O-U-C-K, but you certainly pointed out in the beginning it's actually, his name is H-A-U-C-K. 
U-C-K. So, yes, and- yeah, so w- what happened there? Well, you know, I thought this is going to be an obstacle, you know, but the way it occurred is I think it was one of his very first, it was one of his first bouts uh, when Mr. Schlichter, who had, who, who owned the Lancaster AC, where, you know, Leo fought, he was also, he would do the advertising as well. And he misspelled Leo's name, H-O-U-C-K. And of course, that's what went out, you know, for the advertisement. But Leo liked it. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, I like that. Let's keep that for my, my ring name. (laughs) And that's, that's exactly what happened. You know, it's, it stayed H-O-U-C-K his entire career. (laughs) Interesting. Even, you know, it, it just, and I, as far as I know, he never changed it, you know, never changed it legally or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not, you know, when he went on to his career coaching in Penn State for 27 years, it was Leo Houck, H-O-U-C-K. Wow. Wow. Okay. Leo was no doubt a terrific athlete, but he took a real liking to boxing. How young was Leo when he discovered the sport? And what did he find so intriguing about it? You know, the he was discovering boxing probably when he was uh, he, maybe as young as 11, 12, 13. And he'd go to one of the, the clubs for youngsters. And he... Uh, also was attracted and would try to go to boxing matches and watch him whenever he could. As far as, you know, finding out what that attraction was, uh, I don't know. You know, I think he had, he thought he had an ability to do it and Mm -hmm. was, you know, was intrigued by the sport and definitely idolized some of the fighters of his day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's maybe, you know, it was like, I think I can do it. I'm going to try it. And I want to, the, the big, the big stepping stone there was not only am I going to try it, I want to succeed. And so he he started to succeed right away. I mean, what happened that first time he stepped into the ring and how young was he when he stepped into the ring the first time? He turned professional, and I have it in the book, he turned professional at 14 years old because, and I point this out, he received a silver dollar. <laughs> he, was, he got paid. It makes you a professional. And I pointed out in the book, that was more than his father made after a 12-hour shift at work. Wow. So if you, you know, if you, you know, you think about that in the, you know, it's unimaginable. Plus his first fight, he took his father to his father was very excited about it. They weren't sure about letting him box, but his father went. It was the only fight his father ever got to witness. His father passed away at around age 50 from typhoid. And now understand early 1900s typhoid it's 
you know, diseases were still present mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. But he received a silver dollar and he was also given the pair of gloves that he fought in, a pair of kids' gloves, mm-hmm. which he which he kept for his entire life. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I I really think it was. But you know, just a little bit of background on that, Warren. He met up with a gentleman named Jack Miley, who moved to Lancaster from Philadelphia with his family. Jack was at one time a professional boxer and had a decent record, but became a trainer. Leo discovered where he was and knew his club and kind of bugged him. Like, I want to do this. I, you know, please, you know, I want an opportunity. And Jack said, you come around to my gym. That was the beginning of it. Hmm. And he, he was the most transformational character in Leo's life after Leo's father passed. Wow. Wow. For Jack Miley, the sun rose and set on the countenance of Leo Hauk. Hmm. Hmm. He, he recognized his abilities, nurtured him. And it, it, it just everything worked. He was like the most exceptional student, I guess, Jack could have ever had. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it was it was necessary for him to be trained. And that I really think Jack Miley was. I'm, I'm going to say after his after Leo's father died, that was the individual that. Built the foundation of Leo Hauk. Hmm. Um, Leo came from a pretty tight family and at such a young age, he couldn't just say, well, I'm going to be a boxer, go and fight. He had to get his parents permission. And like you said, his father went to his first fight and Leo won and got that silver dollar. But did, did the family at all balk? at Leo becoming a professional boxer at such a young age? They were, they were very supportive, all of them, including his mother. They fretted and worried about him, but they were, you know, they were, he was the oldest when his father died. So naturally he was expected to also earn a living. And, and help at home, you know, with his mother, which he did. But he did, when he discovered he thought he could be successful with boxing, he segued to it, you know, full time. And his, his family was, his family adored him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like you said, boxing offered a pretty good payday back then. So Leo starts fighting and he's getting paid. His father passes. Um, How much would you say, this could be a a guess, and I'm sure we can make a pretty educated guess here. How much would you say that money was a motivating factor to stay in the fight game? 
Or it, was it strictly a love affair with the sport, or was it a combination of both? I think, I think the money that and purses he won was an enabler to allow him to pursue his career in boxing and his other sports activities: football, basketball, uh, and baseball. I, I really think that's how it worked for Leo. Uh, it uh, it certainly was, you know, boxing was important and money played a big role. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there was, I don't want to, I'm getting a little bit off track here. Uh, but I would say, you know, he earned a really good living doing this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it enabled him to, you know, to buy a home for his mother. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it also, you know, if you think about the hardships of those times when people were working so hard, you know, to make a living. Well, Leo could maybe he could maybe box 10 or 15 matches in a season. And he would have enough money to support his family and pursue his other sports. Hmm. Well, he did play those other sports throughout his career, and and we'll get into a little bit more of that in in just a bit. But what I'm really interested to know right this second is in the beginning, um, people had to take notice. They see this young guy, this kid, and he's doing so well in the ring. How good was he? And 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 go a little bit more in depth as well, if you can, about who his trainers were in the beginning and what their backgrounds were and how they helped Leo and what was training like. Boy, I just gave you a ton of stuff there. <laughs> that no, that's that's all good. Well, you know what? I would I would break it down this way. The way I kind of reckon things out, you know, Jack Miley had Leo under his tutelage for approximately 10 years and, and uh, arranged some fights for him and always arranged the proper, you know, brought him along correctly. The big, I would say a big threshold moment or a stepping stone for Leo was the appearance of uh, Leo Durlocker. Yep. Um, yep. Durlocker knew about Leo and he came from, uh, Philadelphia. He sent word to Leo that he can arrange a fight between Leo and Mickey Gannon. And Mickey Gannon was going out a great clip at that time and certainly more advanced in his career than Leo. Leo took the fight immediately while all his friends and his family said, please don't, don't do this. Don't, you're not you're ready. You know, we're worried about you. You know, he's he's Leo said, I'm I'm going to take the fight. He took the fight and he beat, you know, Mickey Gannon very soundly. Yeah. Convincingly. Yeah. Once that occurred. The the fight started pouring in. Yeah. It catapulted you know. him into another stratosphere. It suddenly did because, you know, he had really by that time before Mickey Gannon, he had pretty much taken care of all the 
the surrounding fighters in Lancaster County. Mm-hmm. You know, he he went through them pretty rapidly. So the Mickey Gannon fight really put him into, I, I guess you would say maybe like the Philadelphia market. Now he was going to start facing some serious competition. And Lou Durlacher was very instrumental for that. And I, I'm I convinced that that's why Leo signed him to be his manager. You know, it's like, you got me this fight. I won the fight. I think you should manage me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the boxing landscape at that time for a moment. Um, you know, you said there was no commission. Um, today, there are so many different belts and there are so many different commissions how was the sport regulated back then and how were matches arranged who governed the sport lay out the landscape for us well you know i i probably can't provide you with you know a real serious history there uh just you know what i know about my research and it was kind of like uh you know, someone came to, you know, you tried, you had a manager, they tried to, of course, get fights for you, and they would arrange contracts, but it was kind of very open, you know, it was, you know, they honored contracts, and in Leo's time, there were mostly for six-round bouts or 10-round box bouts, possibly in New York, and the rules... Uh, <laughs> You know, as far as the rules, you know, regarding championships and taking a belt away were, you know, they were very plain. They were, you had to have a TKO or you had to have a knockout mm-hmm. against a champion if you wanted to claim the belt. And it was, it sounds like an oversimplification, but there were always were a lot of, uh, I would say, you know, elimination bouts going on. Um, I don't think I'm explaining, you know, giving you a good foundation there to work with, but it it seems so wide open. Well, that's part of the reason why you can't give me the great foundation, because maybe there wasn't a great foundation. And and whether you realize it or not, throughout your book, the way you talk about it, we'll get into it in just a bit. Um, It was pretty... It was. It was wide open. It was nothing, nothing like it is today. No, your talent, you know, your talent would elevate you. And uh, that's, you know, it, it pretty much, you know, when Leo came under uh, Lou Durlocker, you know, Lou Durlocker took him in 28 bouts from a lightweight to a successful middleweight. That's almost unheard mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, it, you know, it encompassed a lot of fights and it was setting him up for, you know, the bigger fights. But that I th- I think, you know, regionally, you know, you go to almost any state back then or any region, the Midwest, you know, it, you know, the South. I, I kind of think things operated that way throughout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when when someone was declared a champion, uh in a, in a region that might've been it, but you never knew where the region really was, you know, where did it, it, you know, where did it extend to and how big a region, uh, 
Right. And, you know, until you started to really, you know, until Leo started to really fight top fighters that had very credible records. In other words, they were ranked. Mm -hmm. And then he hit, he was entrenched himself in what I, I would call the big time. Right. And he, but you had to work your way up to the big time. And the first big fight he won, as you said, was the, the fight against Mickey Gannon. What really surprised me was how often these guys fought so many fights in such a short period of time. How did they stay in shape back then? How did they recover? How were they able to fight so often? It's I know it was, you know, they they were they were very durable. I mean, and, and tough guys. Now, of course, you know, they were fighting six round bouts. But, you know, a lot of those fighters back in that day, they were fighting maybe two or three bouts a week at times if they could get the fights. And I just attributed it to, you know what? They needed to pay the rent. That's what they, I was going to ask. Was that a money? Was that, was that a payday motivator? I think so. I really think so. Plus, you know, it was, you know, Edward Hauk, um, which is one of Leo's sons that I interviewed along with his other son, Joe, well, Edward was 97 when we were interviewing and he was great. And he goes, Randy goes, it was the same old story. He goes, it was the way up and out. And, you know, by, by that term, he meant, you know, get yourself out of the neighborhood and kind of elevate yourself into a different, you know, a different plateau, a different station in life. Yeah, a different class. But, you know, how they did it, I don't know. Uh, you know, through the or, you know, through the research, the person that intrigued me the most during the same area and Leo era and Leo fought in five times was battling Levinsky. Mm -hmm. Battling Levinsky to me was maybe the most durable fighter ever of that era possibly between his professional and amateur bouts combined, they have estimated that might've numbered 500 fights. I can't even imagine. It, 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 you know, you know, you can't really even imagine that, you know, but you know, Leo was in that crop, you hmm. know, and uh, it wasn't unusual for him to have uh, two fights in a week he, he did have occasions for, with three uh, or maybe, you know, suddenly, you know, a fight would pop up and, you know, he would take it, you know, because you're going to grab that. You know, you might be sore. Uh, maybe your finger's broken. Uh, anything, you know, yeah. Leo fought, you, you know, Leo fought with his his shins and splints and it was they were just very rugged. Yeah, I mean, what about the injuries? What kind of injuries did they sustain? And how did they recover so quickly to continue fighting? I really think sometimes, you know, they fought through injuries, uh, you know, quite a few of them. I think Leo had a good 
you know, he had a good tolerance for injuries and he, you know, he fought with, uh, with ailments, you know, and, and being sore and, you know, uh, broken bones in his hand, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so they would go into a fight and maybe it wasn't the most important fight. So they cover up, you know, and, uh, you know, Leo got hissed and booed at for that type of thing. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if you're hurting and you can't hit and you, you know, you've got to be selective in how you survive through that, you, you know, you might try and survive by clinch through a lot of that fight. And that kind of thing happened. Uh, and I just attribute it to how to make a living, mm. Mm. you know, how to keep your career going. Well, he, he kept his career going for quite some time, and he made a heck of a living at it. And the first real, real big notch on his belt came in 1910 when he won the welterweight championship against Harry Lewis. It had been a long climb for Leo, but he finally had risen to the top, and he beat Lewis twice. Yeah, talk he, about yeah. If you can talk about those fights and what being welterweight champion meant. Well, it was you know that was really, I think, the epitome of his career, uh, because you know Harry Lewis, which a lot of other early nineteen hundred boxers, they discovered French people loved boxing, and so they would. You know, they would go to France and have very, if they were successful, have very lucrative, you know, tours in in France and Europe. And Leo had beat Harry Lewis earlier uh, and finally got this fight. And of course, Harry Lewis was he was bragging a little bit. You know, I'm going to you know, I, I think I'm going to maybe ruin Leo's health when he gets over here. <laughs> uh, you know, it was. It was like that. And um, Leo was quiet. I mean, he, you know, I very seldom found a lot of comments from him in the press. He, he kept a lot of stuff under his vest. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he went over to France and he was, you know, very quiet over there. Um, didn't talk much to the press. Went into the fight. And uh, a 20 round fight beside crazy. You know, it, it, it's crazy, right? You know, that you would even imagine something like that. But I know there's been fights, you know, that have been more rounds. But, you know, in Leo's case, he went over there, performed and, you know, took the title away. Now, the writer, the famous boxing writer, William Rocap, wired back you know, Leo's new middleweight champ. Well, that wasn't true. Yeah, I thought he was yeah. welter, welterweight that, champ. That's correct. They were fighting, <clears throat> excuse me, they were fighting at a middleweight weight. Mm. They, were, they were not under welterweight conditions. So that press never caught on, you know, in the United States, but it cemented, you know, his reputation as a, as a boxer. And he, the people in, in France loved him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
Yeah, you wrote about that a couple times in your book about how they always wanted him to come back, but one thing led to another, and you never did. Was was being the welterweight champion, beating Lewis, was that a world's title? Was he well, the, you know what, yeah. I I uh, I'm I don't think I can respond to you accurately on that. Uh, I would say Harry Lewis was the welterweight champion of France. Gotcha. Uh, I, I don't think that was a world title. Well, what did that championship mean? What did that mean to Leo to win that title? And, well, was it, it and was, how was it celebrated back here? It was it was huge. You know, uh, when he came back here, it was, you know, he was overwhelmed at the rail station when he came back. And naturally, you know, he, suddenly he was catapulted into, you know, almost a different uh a different stratosphere for him but to his credit this man was so uh grounded that uh just went back to fighting uh that season he might have just went right back to playing baseball you know it's like okay you know it's baseball season i'm i'm gonna do that now mm. uh he he was offered uh a very lucrative contract to return to France and have a tour in France. And that was, and you know, that was going to happen, but something else got in his way. Jack Dylan broke his ribs mm. and that ruined the tour. Right. Right. Hey, Randy, one of the things that, I, I had trouble following. I couldn't figure this part out. Is that he won that title, the welterweight title. But if you can, clear up for me how he lost that title. I'm not sure I understand how all of this worked. I mean, he won and short time later was a contender for the title, but he never lost the belt in the ring. Is that because well, it was the France championship and not the world championship. I don't understand that. I think, you know, I, I think in reality, what happened was they were fighting as middleweights in France, him and Lewis, there was really no title to be had. You know, they were, they were fighting at, uh, you know, a higher weight. So even though Lewis was a welterweight champion, uh, his title was protected. It was not really on the line. Mm. So even though he beat him, you know, he, in essence, he returned, but he returned without a title, but he returned as a contender. Gotcha. And he and, was, and, and a champion of some sort. Exactly. You know, he would still be, you know, suddenly, you know, he was in kind of a rarefied, uh, company in the middleweight division, but that time the middleweight division was very heavy with good fighters. Yeah, it sure sounds like it from from what I read in your book. And like you said, it wasn't long after that he moved up to uh, a middleweight, and he became a contender for that championship right away why did he move up in the weight class and how did fighting as a middleweight go for leo i mean this guy was hardly 
ever outclassed or ever defeated. He was, you know, he was at, at one point, you know, I think I had him ranked at least number three, you know, in the nation. Uh, and at times I would say, well, he, possibly he could have been number one. But, you know, he was taking down, uh, you know, he was defeating uh, ranked fighters, you know, like Frank Klaus, you know, and, uh, you know, boxers in that in that category, George Chip, uh, George Chip, he defeated him. I forget how many times uh, battling Levinsky, another contender. He early on, he beat battling Levinsky two times, which, you know, that didn't go down very well with mm-hmm. battling. Levinsky. Mm-hmm. So he he kept elevating himself and. Uh, eventually, the better fights came to him. Mm-hmm. For for example, Mike Gibbons. Mike, no one really talked about Mike Gibbons a whole lot in the local press here on the East Coast, but he was a terror. And really, in the Midwest, he was number one. Well, you know, Leo didn't beat him. Mike Gibbons beat Leo Hauk, mm-hmm. but mm. Leo Leo was still there. Mm-hmm. You know. He was he was still ranked anywhere from one to five. And of course, you know, he went against Dylan, one of the most durable fighters, the giant killer. Uh, And as an aside, you know, Leo had told his family, he said Jack Dylan was the hardest hitter he ever encountered. Hmm. He said, he, you know, he, he didn't beat him. I think he did possibly fight Dylan to a draw, but now I'm more drawing off my memory here. But so he was fighting all these people and seemingly, you know, never getting his shot. But I always kind of likened Leo to, uh, you know, you know, the upstarts coming up through the ranks that wanted to be contenders. Mm-hmm. Typically. If you were going to come up through the ranks, you're going to have to go through Leo Hauk. Mm. Mm. And a lot of them, and a lot of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Let's, and, let, 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 yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Warren. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit, and, and bear with me for a second, a little bit about his ability in the ring. As he matured, his left jab, right uppercut combo became lethal. In fact, in your book, you write that it lifted opponents off their feet, yet there was one glaring weakness in Leo's game. He was soft. And by that, I mean this. He could be on the verge of knocking someone out, and then he'd let up. He felt sorry for his opponent, and he found it unnecessary to finish him off. In fact, I think this strategy might have cost Leo a few wins. Talk about Leo's ability in the ring, his strengths and his weaknesses. You know, uh, I think, you know, one of his big strengths punching wise was he was a master at the double jab. And uh, that was he, he had a very rapid double jab. And he even when he was when he would coach later on at Penn State, he would tell all his students. You work on them with that jab, and when you see an opening, clobber them. 
you know, with your with your right or your left. But that was one of his strengths. And uh, he was a big body puncher as well. And it was noted he had a tendency to maybe leave up on an opponent. And I just think, it, you know, and I talked over this with, uh, you know, both his sons, Edward and, and Joe, and we interviewed quite often. We'll get together. Now, mm-hmm. they kind of, you know, believe the same thing. I think that when Leo knew he could really, you know, beat an opponent fairly easily and figure them out, he would maybe let up on them, not go head hunting, because he recognized one thing. They need to bring in a paycheck too. Why why do I want to hurt this guy? Mm, interesting. I, I just that's you know what, that is all my hypothesis, my idea. But I think that would be his nature. However, conversely, if anybody ever did Leo wrong in the ring and, you know, he, he was going to go all out, you know, mm-hmm. he would, he was definitely, you know, he will fight very hard and uh, he would settle uh, accounts. So mm-hmm. he was not he was not opposed to fighting hard if uh, someone engaged him or maybe someone uh, pulled some dirty tricks on him and got away with it on a fight before. Mm-hmm. Now, Randy, we could go really, really deep in depth, but I don't want to hit everything that's in your book. I want to give people the opportunity to buy your book and read it. And 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 I mean, you go deep in the detail about so many different fights, but one fight. Um, and you mentioned it, George Chip. I mean, Leo beat him. He won the middleweight championship from him in 1913, but it wasn't without controversy. What happened, and who was ultimately named champion? Well, George Chip uh, is a boxer that uh, Leo, for some reason, Leo could dominate pretty well. and. George Chip had a circumstance where he was able to capture the middleweight title. And this, this was almost, you know, you know, he knocked out his opponent. I'm trying to grasp it who his opponent was mm-hmm. at the time. He, George Chip won and took the title. Mm-hmm. This was all looking really good because Leo was getting set up to fight George Chip for the title. Mm -hmm. And everything was aligning. You know, this is, this is finally going to be the big moment. And maybe Leo is going to knock him out this time. But in the interim, George Chip had broken, I broken his hand. I think he had broken it in the fight. Well, but but wait, I think I think I'm I'm sorry. Um, I think that came later. I thought, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that Leo beat Chip, but because he didn't knock him out, it was written that the only way Chip or the champion could lose the title 
was to be knocked out. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. You know, I got off track with you there. I do apologize. That's true. That was, you know, that was the way you got the title. If if you say you won on every round against the bona fide champion, but you didn't muster a TKO or knock them out, the champion retained the title. Wow. That's crazy because Leo, Leo beat him and he doesn't get the, we'll call it the belt. He's not the champion. So he beats Chip, doesn't knock him out. So somehow in this crazy time period, Chip is Chip remains champion. Yeah, and that, and yeah. that, yeah, and then we get to where you were going. Leo has two fights against Chip postponed because of injuries to Chip's hand. Now, prior to finally fighting Chip, Chip tunes up against his no-name guy Al McCoy. McCoy shocks the world and knocks out Chip to claim the title, and then he refuses to fight Leo. And in my mind, the crazy thing about all of this is Leo beat Chip by decision, but because he didn't knock him out, he doesn't get the title, and he never gets a shot at McCoy. Who oversees this and allows this to happen? It, it is an incredible thing. And Warren, you, you have really scoured the book because that was, you know, that, that was such an important moment. Uh, Cause once Al McCoy got that, he was back in New York and uh, Leo uh, could never, you know, they just could never come to terms and get Al McCoy just would not fight Leo and subsequently, he held on to that title for like about three years. So oh my he was Al, Al, McCoy, Al McCoy was living pretty good, avoiding Leo Hauk. But uh, you know what could you do? It was it was really a a bad break for Leo because it could have been Leo's moment. Uh, you know, judged on you know the prior fight with Chip, kind of a sad story. Uh, you know, the way that worked, but, you know, Leo, you know, I never read anything. He just was very kind of a tight lipped with the press, Hmm. you know, Hmm. he didn't complain. He didn't complain about it. Maybe he did personally to family and some friends, but he never made a big public thing, you know, through the press. Hmm. So, he took it. He took it in stride. Hmm. You know, Randy, um, trainers and managers play such a huge role in the successes or failures of a boxer. What can you tell us about Lou Durlocker? We mentioned him earlier. How essential was he to Leo's career? Well, you know, I would, you know, I think he was really after you know, after Jack Miley, you know, and his, his time training Leo early on, I think, uh, Durlocker was very, very important figure because of the way he brought him along into the middleweight ranks, you know, talking to Edward Hauk and Joe Hauk, uh, Leo's sons, you know, we had discussions about that. And, uh, there were possibly things that were happening and, uh, you know, they knew a little bit, but see, they were at the time when Leo's career, 
was going on boxing, they weren't even born yet. So mm. they kind of, you know, they kind of got a history from the mother and from Leo. Um, they, you know, there was, I don't, you know, I don't want to come up with some kind of premise there. There was obviously uh, some things that happened. Maybe it was over money. Maybe it was the type of bouts he was not getting him, but they parted ways. And uh, that was that. Uh, Leo never made a big deal out of that or a public, you know, he, he just, he didn't air dirty laundry, cons you mm -hmm. know, concerning his career. Well, you said they parted ways. Yeah. I mean, Leo and Lou split. Then they got back together. Then they, they did. split again. Yes. Then they yes. got back together. Talk about their relationship. Well, you know what? I could find I could find very little about it. And I tried to, you know, research that end of it, you know, to find more about Durlacher. Uh, so I think I'm just going to have to leave it. You know, I can't really answer you mm -hmm. uh, or, or provide a good answer. Uh, I discussed this. <clears throat> with Edward and, and Joe Halk. And I said, can I suggest this idea to you? And what do you think about it? I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that maybe Lou was, Lou Durlocker was doing his job and trying to keep Leo's nose to the grindstone because Leo would fight maybe so many fights in a season and that would be it he goes hey i'm gonna play baseball or i'm gonna play football and his sons really seem to think the same way that mm. uh, you know maybe a different manager could have kept him more focused on his boxing career his primary sport mm -hmm. but you know i i said in the book I don't know if Leo would have put up with that anyway. Yeah, I he mean, the way, the way you wrote it in the book was, and it was always around the same time of year, he would walk away from boxing and play either basketball or baseball or, or football. And that sort of also helped keep him in shape. I mean, this guy was an all-around athlete, and he really had a love, a love for baseball in particular. Um, and he felt that it kept him in shape. He did. And, you, you know, I think he always, you know, you try and, you know, you get so close to your subject and now suddenly you think, well, you know, now I can think like my subject, but that's not true. And that's a bad, you know, direction to take. Uh, but it seems like Leo, he loved to be close to home to fight. He wasn't averse to traveling, but he, he made a good living doing that he supported his family he he seemed to be very happy doing all these things and well you know what if i beat the right guys i'm gonna get the shot you know it's gonna happen something's gonna turn up mm -hmm. uh, i'm i'm just you know i'm i'm coming up with uh really my own idea about that uh, mm -hmm. You know, even, you know, even with the discussions with the sons, you know, it was, that was kind of a mystery to them. You know, it's like, you know, our father was 
he he could have been very wealthy, you know, going on, you know, a European tour. He was offered a very lucrative tour in Australia. Uh, he had the recognition and, you know, the people, you know, he had a fan base mm-hmm. and the ability. But the other sports were very important and maybe that derailed him to some degree. But, you know, Warren, I really think of it this way. You know, maybe that was a derailed him from another potential title shot. But look at how he extended his career by taking maybe only so many fights a season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he fought for a long time for sure. Um, and and a lot of fights in a short period of time each year. Never knocked out. Never knocked out, which is incredible. I mean, in in how many years did he fight? I mean, he was never never knocked out. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about Leo is this. Face it, in the in, in the game of boxing, the names are the heavyweights. The heavyweight, especially the heavyweight champions, those are the biggest names in the sport. But every once in a while, you hear about somebody else, you know, in a in a lighter lighter weight class. One of the criticisms of Leo's career, especially after he and Durlocker split, was the fact that, as Bat Masterson, a New York City sports writer, put it, Leo needed a big-time promoter. So as we look at the career of Leo Houck as a whole, his notoriety is minuscule. People don't know about Leo Houck. How did not having a big-time promoter affect his overall career and notoriety. And you sort of just maybe touched upon it that, eh, you know, he opted to go this route. And the other thing was he sort of opted to fight at home as often as he could. So how did all of this affect his notoriety? It, Yeah, I think, you know, it, it really did, you know, because when you have a, uh... You know, when you have a, a writer like Bat Masterson take note of that, uh, you know, that, you know, this guy just needs the, the right handling, you know, the right fights. And, and he's going to be there. You know, he's going to be fighting in the garden. You know, he'll be there. Uh, it it was seemed obvious, but I just don't think that Leo was. I, he, I think he would have appreciated that those opportunities, but it would there was just something there. It was he was not oriented towards being. I think he just thought that if it's going to happen, I'm going to probably get there without the benefit of a big time manager. Mm. You know, I I can I'm either going to do it this season or the next season, and. Naturally, you know, thinking about it as he was getting older and then he started to encounter fighters like Harry Greb, you know, who were young and, you know, Harry Greb, of course, beat him each time. But I think by then, Leo had to realize, you know, my my star is, you know, kind of 
falling a little bit now. I'm still active in the game, but I'm probably never going to get that fight. But consider what he was still doing at that age. Mm-hmm. He was he was considered, you know, like he's now grandpa. Grandpa's mm-hmm. fighting Harry Greb. Mm-hmm. Grandpa's fighting Gene Tunney. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's because he was a tough, durable fighter who had speed and still had his legs under him. Mm-hmm. He, he was, I think he was a very comfortable individual and very understanding of all his talents and his abilities. Uh, maybe he wasn't driven. You know, I, you know, it's, we could probably, you know, that's a good point. Cause I have some bullet points written down here. You know, did he ever realize his potential? Was he held back? But as I read deeper and deeper into your book, I asked this question of myself, what was the end game for Leo? The title of the book is very apropos, Leo Houck, a biography of boxing's uncrowned middleweight champion. He did win the championship, and he never won the light heavyweight championship, which is what he tried to accomplish during the latter years of his career, especially in fights against Greb and Tunney. Did he really ever have a shot at the light heavyweight championship? What was the end game for Leo? Was he given a fair shot in his career? What was the end game? Well, when, you know, when he started to get heavier and, you know, he was fighting at around 175, uh, he was, you know, he was able to take on the bigger guys. But, you know, even then, he was, he, he just wasn't being, I don't think, managed very well, or he wasn't uh, going in that direction. Like, you know, I'm going to try for a light heavyweight title because he was fighting second and third tier light heavyweights. So it didn't seem like he was interested, you know, like, maybe I could do that. And maybe it was just not good management. I, I, you know, I never kind of figured that out uh, because he still was really a very potent boxer and a good boxer, but it was becoming, it was, it was late in his career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that would have been, you know, a light heavyweight title for him at that time, I think would have been very difficult. Not that he wouldn't have had the ability. I think he had the ability, and with the right breaks, he could have been there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once again, you know, maybe not taking the right fights, you know, still, you know, participating in other sports. Uh, Maybe maybe it boiled down to a matter of priorities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... Do do you think he ever realized his potential? Yeah. you know, if if you would if you would pose it in the in the way of maybe you know having a manager that could control and drive him, and he would be compliant with that, I think he would have definitely had a title at some point. But I think 
Warren, he resisted that to some degree. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I do think he reached his put. I, I really do think he reached his potential because even later in his career, when he, he faced boxers like Harry Greb and, you know, when Gene Tunney was, you know, uh, training to fight Dempsey, he was, you know, he was fighting people like Gene Tunney. So that would, he was there for a reason. He was known, like, if you put Leo in the ring with you, you know, you as a fighter, you can, t- if you can take his punches and he was a hard puncher, you're, that's, that's a good, you know, you're, you're training yourself correctly, you know, by taking him on as a preliminary. So I, I think he did do that uh, and, and reached his – I think he, he was able to reach his potential, yes. 1902 was his first fight. 1926 was his last fight. He was never knocked out. What is Leo's legacy as a boxer? And what should we remember about him as a boxer? Yeah, it's an incredible story. Uh, you know, I think when I finally, it took me a while to convince his son, Edward Hauk, who was a very well-educated man. He's passed away now, but he at one time was a newspaper reporter after he graduated from University of Miami. He w- I, I told him, I said, I wish I could write like you because he had a nice style of writing. Mm-hmm. And and I think some of the legacy of Leo is a really a great record. And he had a good knockout record of around 20%. But what I love, something I loved about Leo that his son wrote about was his son said his friends when he were young, when Leo was young, continued to be his friends when he were he was older. Hmm. He, you know, he maintained relationships. He would, Edward also, you know, he was very, very religious. He was a Catholic and very grounded in his faith and attended mass routinely, sometimes very early in the morning. And I, you know, there's, he didn't really spend money on anything i mean i don't think he hardly ever did things for himself Hmm. and his you know his son pointed it out that you know leo uh he he was just happy being like uh in in his sweatsuit around the house you know and he might have had a couple suits uh and you know wore no jewelry and nothing ostentatious about him uh he was I think the type of person, a celebrity that was approachable and someone that maybe you couldn't wait to talk to or or say hi or have him acknowledge you uh, because I think he was just such a genuine, very common person. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. He, you know, it's like it was, you know, no brag, just fact, you know. He had this career behind him and it was it was a great career. And then he started another exceptional career, 27 years coaching at Penn State. He was uh, 
Yeah, just, and, and he had a heck of a career there. I mean, he had some champions. They won some titles. And I don't want to get into all that. I want people to buy your book and read more about it. We've only scratched the surface of his career as a boxer. There's so much more detail. And you talk about so many other fights. And, and Randy, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about the great Leo Houck. I mean, this has been fascinating for me. Oh, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. I I uh, I, <laughs> I hope the interview turns out well. Uh, it was, Warren. You know, to, you know, to kind of conclude everything. When I think about it, it was just a fortuitous amount of events that happened that uh, you know he became a subject I could write about, and then to meet one of his sons, Joseph. And Joseph said, I need to talk to my brother, Edward, the other brother, the older brother. I think he would be interested in, in, you know, interviewing and working with us. It was a fantastic opportunity to be with them and and basically get to know their family and get to know about their father and end up writing a book. It was I, I don't probably will never have that experience again. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. It was. Well, good for you, Randy. Again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Warren, thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, it was it was really a pleasure for me, and I enjoyed it. You got it anytime. Thank you, Warren. So, Leo Houck, not a name many are familiar with at all, but. He was truly one of boxing's first superstars, especially in the lighter weight classes. Imagine fighting for over 20 years and stepping into the ring on back-to-back nights. Boxers today, the way the sport is set up, how strong they are, how devastating their punches are, the way they train, no way could ever. Any boxer muster up the strength to fight the way Leo and his contemporaries did back in the day. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Randy Swope. You can get a copy of his book on my website, sportsfh.com. Just click the link, or you can go straight to Amazon or other booksellers. I'd also like to thank McFarland & Company Publishing for sending me a copy. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.